Hello, everyone, and welcome to BibleQuest.tv, the Tuesday edition. We hope all of you will join us in the discussion today as the panelists discuss questions and comments that come in from the audience. Uh, first, I'd like to say it's great to be back after being away for a week. And, and Jeff, I want to thank you for uh, opening the program last week. I heard you did a great job, and I uh, just <laughs> want to thank you for that. Wasn't like you do it, Drew. Oh, no, I'm sure you did it. No, we missed you. I appreciate that. Uh, we also have from uh, Gettysburg, Scott is with us. Hi, hi, Scott. Oh, that's nice, Scott. You need sign language if you're not going to turn your microphone on. <laughs> <laughs> there. Got okay, it. there you go. Now we hear you. And also, Stephen, good to see you again this week. How you doing, Stephen? Thanks, Drew. Doing well. Welcome, everybody. Yeah. And Noah, our webcast engineer, is here, and he'll be helping us with uh, your questions and comments as they come. Hi, come in. Hi, Noah. Hello, how you guys doing? And I'm Drew, your host from Honesdale, Pennsylvania. Welcome everybody to the show. As as we mention every week, we, we want to really hear from you in the audience uh, during the live broadcast, whether you have questions or comments or anything really, just make it hard questions. We want to challenging questions as well. Enter them in your in the text box in the Zoom app or if you're coming in from the Zoom app, you can also call in by clicking the hand icon. That'll tell us that you want to talk to us using your microphones on your computer. Uh, and Stephen, you're also broadcasting on your Facebook page, right? Yes. If you're coming in through my Facebook page today, as always, please feel free to leave comments or questions on the topic we're currently addressing or other Bible questions that you have. Our, our, our list of questions has grown pretty short as of late, so please feel free to leave other Bible questions you have during the program down in the comments below, and we'll get to those as soon as we can. And actually, on the Facebook uh, live broadcast uh, webcast, it's anywhere from 15 to, I don't know, 20 seconds below, uh, delayed broadcast. So if you're t texting in, you're texting in about something that might've been said 20 minutes, 20 seconds ago. And then by the time we get to it, so get, bear with us as we try to get through all of those. So, so what that means is jump in early with your questions. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yes. Good. Good. That's a good selling point. Um, guys, let me start off with a comment that apparently came in during the discussion last week. And I know you covered a lot of the material and we're not going to go through all of that again, but this comment addresses I think from another vantage point that maybe didn't cover and just pretty much talk about it you know, in a minute or for about a minute or so. And this comment came in <coughs> from Cassandra it says washings, washings are not a new thing. It's, it's throughout the old Testament that God established. And the reason why so many people have a problem with baptism is they need to really study the scriptures and see it is not a new thing. Where do you want to go guys? Well, I think that's notable to, to think about just the idea of baptism in the sense of immersion in water is something that God used over and over again in the Old Testament to be the dividing line between slavery and freedom, life and death, things like that. Uh, you think all the way back to Genesis 6 and the flood, right? Uh, the, the world had become so wicked that the, the thought and intention of man's heart was evil continually. And Noah was saved from that wicked world through water. Uh, the, the, the earth was baptized, if you will. It was immersed in water. And Noah and his family were brought safely through that. And First Peter picks up on that analogy. Uh, baptism is a, a type of that. 
or an antitype, excuse me. Um, so that's, uh, let's read that verse there. If, uh, somebody's not familiar with it in first Peter chapter three, uh, and it's starting with verse 20 refers to a foretime, uh, when the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved through water, which also after true likeness does now save you, even baptism. Not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the interrogation of a good conscience towards God. So that's first Peter three, twenty and twenty one. Very good. So that the flood itself is connected to baptism. But then you just start to look at other events in the Old Testament. We think about the Red Sea crossing, uh, where it was the dividing line between slavery and freedom for the children of Israel. They passed through the water. Um, and it says in 1 Corinthians 10, in a sense, they were baptized into Moses, in a sense, when they passed through the Red Sea. And in connection with that one, Stephen, I like to point out that there in Exodus 14, when they came through the water after Pharaoh's army is drowned in the water and, and the Israelites are safe on the other side, it says, thus the Lord saved Israel that day. They'd been slaves in bondage to Pharaoh. Now they're free when they came through the water. Yeah. And then, of course, after that, they come through the wilderness and they come to the Jordan River and the difference between being out in the wilderness and then passing into the promised land is a crossing of the water, passing through the water. In this case, the waters pile up of the Jordan river and they pass through on dry land. Um, there's some individual cases, uh, Naaman in second Kings five. I believe we looked some at that last week with Scott's charts, uh, that Naaman, uh, had to go and do what to be healed of his leprosy. Dip himself seven times in the Jordan river. And he comes up clean. And then in the New Testament, the blind man in John 9 is told to go and wash, dip himself, and he, he comes back seeing. And in all of those cases, there's a healing or a salvation. Was it ever by works? No. 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 None of the, none of the salvation was ever earned by those people. But God still chose to make water the dividing line in each of those cases between being in a, a state where you need rescuing and a state where you've been rescued. So what, what you're saying in these, in all of these, it's highlighting the fact that in the old Testament, there was a preparation for the idea of water as a saving point. Uh, the cleansing aspect of water, obviously it's the blood of Jesus Christ that takes away our sin, but it's, it's baptism at which point we become connected with the death of Jesus Christ. We're baptized into Christ's death. But this idea that the old Testament had laid a foundation for understanding this concept. Guys, I really believe that's what's being said in Hebrews, the sixth chapter in the first couple of verses. And it's a passage that I think a lot of people have struggled with. The King James says in Hebrews six verses one and two, therefore leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection. And that's just, that's kind of shocking when you just hear that and you don't know what's going on. Leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ and go on to perfection? Why would I leave yeah, Christ? Because to go Christ to is perfection. Christ is perfection. But the point of the book of Hebrews, of course, is moving Jewish believers from a reliance upon the priesthood of the Old Testament to a reliance in Christ. And what the writer is saying right here in this passage is look, you have things 
uh, from the Old Testament that were foundational principles pointing you to Christ. Leave those things behind, but the things that he mentions are all things that were that were part of the Old Testament service and worship. Look at them with me. Uh, first of all, he says, and I'm not, now I'm going to read it from the American Standard, which says, wherefore, leaving the doctrine of the first principles of Christ, kind of the elementary, the foundational, the preparatory things. Let us press on unto perfection, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. Well, let's just pause. In the Old Testament, was repentance a concept that God's people understood? Yeah, the Ten Commandments. Yeah. Ten Commandments. Uh, Jonah even went and preached to the uh, Assyrians uh, repentance, or let's say they got the idea of repentance when he said, you're going to be destroyed. (laughs) Um, How about, then it goes on, it says, uh, faith toward God. Uh, It's in Acts, the 20th chapter, I believe, where Paul talks about preaching um, faith in Christ and repentance. You know, that that passage may not be worded the way I'm thinking, but the idea of faith toward God is obviously a concept we see in the Old Testament, right? No, certainly. The next thing he mentions is uh, uh, teaching of baptisms, which I want to come back to, and then laying on of hands. Was laying on of hands a thing in the Old Testament? We see it in the New Testament, giving people the spiritual gifts through the laying on of hands. We see um, Paul and Barnabas, they laid hands on them to send them uh, on their preaching tour in Acts the 13th chapter. Was laying on of hands a thing in the Old Testament? Where can you think of how about when Moses is designating his successor? Joshua. Jo- Joshua, in Numbers, the 27th chapter, God says to Moses in verse 18, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit, and lay your hand on him. And then you come down in the chapter, and, and Moses gives the authority to Joshua and commissions Joshua. In verse 22 says, uh, verse 23 says, then he laid his hands on him and commissioned uh, then we come to the next one in Hebrews 6, and it says, uh, resurrection of the dead. Was that something that Old mm-hmm. Testament saints believed in? David talks in the Psalm 17 about being satisfied when he awakes and see God's likeness or see God's face, talking about the resurrection from the dead. There are other passages we could appeal to. But even when we come down to New Testament times and we look at the Jews and what kind of ideas they have inherited, uh, the Pharisees are notable because they do believe in resurrection while the Sadducees don't. And there are many resurrection stories in the Old Testament. Those resurrection stories laid the foundation for understanding God's power over death and that Jesus could conquer death for us. Uh, And then finally, eternal judgment. Was that a concept Old Testament saints had? Yeah, certainly. All, All of these things... The one that kind of jumps out at us is this word baptisms. At least that's the way it's rendered in Hebrews 6, 2 by the King James Version, the American Standard Version. You guys, you're looking at your Bibles. What do your translations say? You- uh, ESV is uh, baptisms. Okay. Well, it's washings in the ESV, and the footnote says, or baptisms, that is cleansing rites. So there are two oh, wait, I'm looking at the wrong translation. You're right. You're right. That's different. So there are two words. One is baptismas, and one is baptisma. And when we think of baptism, say, for example, the baptism of John, or say Ephesians 4, where it says there's one baptism, or 1 Peter chapter 3, the light figure whereunto baptism doth also now save us. That's the word baptisma. But there are four places in the New Testament where the word 
Baptist Moss is used. Baptist Moss is used in Mark the seventh chapter, where Jesus' disciples are criticized for uh, not following the traditions of the elders and Jesus uh, eating with unwashed hands. And you remember Mark talking of cups and vessels, and it's this word, baptismas. And then you have Hebrews chapter 9. Somebody have Hebrews chapter 9 and verse, uh, I think it's verse 5 or 6, Andy, verse, no, it's Hebrews yes, chapter 9. Yes, he's got, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations yes. of the body or for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Talking about the rituals of the Old Testament uses this word baptismas, the washings. And it's used also in Colossians 2.12, where interestingly it does have, have reference to Christian baptism. The point I'm getting at is this. Hebrews 6 is talking about things that God, that, that the Israelites of the Old Testament already understood, things they already believed in, things they already practiced. They were a, a foundational thing, laying the groundwork for the, 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 the uh, things that would be characteristic of the teaching of the Christ in the New Testament. The Hebrews writer is saying to these people, okay, okay, you believed in resurrection. You believed in repentance from dead works. You believed in washings, these ritualistic washings. Those were foundational. They pointed you to the Christ. Now move on. Let's understand that we've got a better priesthood than the Levitical priesthood. We've got the ultimate priesthood in Christ. So, so Jeff, I know you can hold that where you're at, but I just want to reinforce what you're saying because I want to make sure I understand it right. The things that are elementary doctrine of Christ, he's referring to these things which are from the Old Testament. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And so then when we go back and we look at all these places in the Old Testament where God used water as a line of demarcation from slavery to freedom or as a point of cleansing, uh, those things are laying a foundation for understanding baptism in Christ. And, And that's the point that is being made here in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. I just want to share a comment we got from April. One of our viewers says, this is very interesting to me because I've been wondering recently about John 1, 25. When the Jews came to question John the Baptist, they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And I've been very curious if, how, why the Jews seemed from this to have some expectations of baptism, or at least who would have authority to baptize, even if they didn't understand it fully. So this is helpful. Yeah. And in that line of thought, um, the, 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 I, the extent to which the Jews associated washing and cleansing with the coming Messiah uh, is seen in the traditions that they developed surrounding the um, the Feast of Tabernacles. And this is something I didn't understand until recently. I think we may have talked about it on the Wednesday webcast, but in John the seventh chapter, no, we haven't talked about it on Wednesday webcast. It's another thing that I do where we were talking about this. But in John the seventh chapter, in connection with the Feast of Tabernacles, when they traditionally would have a ceremony where they would go down and get water from the pool of Siloam and bring it up through the water gate and pour it out in the temple grounds, as this is, Uh, something that's been going on, we get to the last day of this great feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, and Jesus stands and he says, if any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, from within him, from within him shall flow rivers of living water. And so when he makes this kind of statement in connection with a ceremony that the Jews think of as anticipatory of their messianic cleansing and their pouring out literal water, And Jesus says, 
I am the living water. Come to me and you'll have water flowing from within you. Um, that's, that would ring true to Jews because they had this idea of water associated with the coming Messiah. Guys, I just want to throw out a challenge to you. I want to play the other advocate. I've heard it said, you guys, you guys in this group, you're always talk, you always talk so much about baptism, always about baptism. How do you answer that? I I would say, well, look here. There's a lot about water in the Bible from beginning to end. (laughs) And, And so God talked a lot about it. Joe Works reminds me, yes, we did talk about this on our Wednesday webcast. It's actually Joe who first called my attention to this. Um, I had not been aware of that background of the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, the background to Jesus' comments there in John 7. Uh, Drew, your question reminds me of an old joke. Uh, preacher kept preaching on baptism, and somebody said, you're always preaching on baptism. Why don't you preach on something else? So he started on Genesis 1, talked about how the world was created and separated the dry land from the water, which brings me to my subject. (laughs) 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 But one of the reasons uh, that we have been, uh, and of course this was a question that uh, uh, a listener had sent in, uh, but other times that we have taken time to focus on baptism is because the topic is so misrepresented today. Um, Galatians is written to a group of people because they've accepted the idea that they need to be circumcised and follow the Jewish calendar in, in Jewish ways. And so, so Paul talked a lot about those things in that letter. If that hadn't been a problem there, that wouldn't have been what Galatians you know, had, had to deal with. It could have been about something else. So I'm like, playing, Paul, why are you talking so much about circumcision? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but we live in a culture where uh, so many people, you know, uh, good people, they, they pick up their Bible and, and they go to church and they sit and they listen to a sermon, maybe a good sermon on this or that. But then when they're challenged to surrender their life to Christ, their routine in a lot of churches is their routine where he says, everybody close your eyes, you know, everybody head bowed, every eye closed. I'm going to pray a prayer. And after I pray this prayer, you know, if you pray it with me, you'll be saved. And that's simply not what we see. So baptism has been kind of vilified and ignored. And so because of that, we end up some, uh, spending some time emphasizing the correct biblical picture of it. Could be also because in sermons that you you gentlemen preach a lot over the years, I've heard them too. That baptism is, a, I wouldn't say every Sunday type of sermon, but it's in the thread with everything else. Whereas in other congregations that, or other denominations, oh sorry, denominations of the world, they don't have those kinds of that didn't you? They don't have those kinds of uh, topics or subjects in their sermons. Yeah. Well, anything else on on that topic today before we move to our next viewer question? Let's go to that next question. Our next question comes from Holly, who asked last week, I would like to see an episode on praying in Jesus' name. I've heard recently that you don't always have to pray in his name. I've never heard this before, and I remember reading that Jesus told his disciples to pray in his name. Also, the reasoning was that we wouldn't want to overdo it 
and praying in his name loses its meaning. <laughs> so that's our, our question. Well, from I, would, I would throw this out. I would say we, must, we, we can only pray. We must always pray in Jesus' name. But that doesn't mean necessarily you have to say in Jesus' name at the end of the prayer to be praying in Jesus' name. All right, so let's start with that. What does it mean to be praying in Jesus' name? And then secondly, what are the majority of examples of prayers that we see in the New Testament? Yeah, well, I do want to acknowledge that this question does come from Scripture. Uh, Jesus does talk about praying in his name. There are several places in the Gospel John where Jesus did say that. Let's look at John 14 for just a moment. And almost all of these are in this uh, conversation that Jesus had with his apostles the night he was betrayed. Uh, In John chapter 14, verse 13 and 14, Jesus said, this is John 14, 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, some translations omit the me there. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Uh, it comes up again in John 15, verse 16. John fifteen sixteen. He said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And then in uh, two more quickly in John 16, verse 23 and 26. John 16, 23, Jesus said, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. And the last one there, verse 26 of John 16. In that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say uh, to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Scott? Okay, so, and and just think about why that's so, and then I want to pose a couple of questions, one from Colossians 3 and one from Acts 19. Uh, It is through Christ that we have the right to, 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 or the opportunity to be reconciled um, to to our creator. Uh, It's in Ephesians chapter 2, through Christ we have access, and uh, in, in Hebrews, by His blood we're able to boldly approach the throne of grace. So we should, of course, pray in Jesus' name. And before we go further, I will say this: I always say at the end of a prayer, in Jesus' name, not because I think I have to say those words, but it should. I, I, I want to pray in Jesus' name, and I think it's good to verbalize it. But the question. I want us to look at is does in Jesus's name so much mean saying the phrase or doing it in Jesus's name. Often when people see the phrase in Jesus name, we think the whole point, the the point there is to say the words in Jesus's name. When the question I want to pose here is what is the actual concept of doing something in Jesus's name. So let's, looking at Colossians 3 and Acts 19 to get two sides of this, 
what do we see in Colossians 3.17? And what do we learn about doing things in the name of Jesus from that text? Well, it says, Colossians 3.17, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. All right. So, Stephen, is your teaching Bible here today? Are you doing that in Jesus' name? Yes, I better be. And as a preacher of the gospel, as you're reading that passage from Colossians, did you do it in Jesus' name? Yes. I did not hear you say, I read this in Jesus' name. <laughs> That's right. I didn't verbalize it, but hopefully I'm respecting his authority and presenting the scriptures as his word. I'm doing that by the authority of Jesus. Fact, yes. Uh, Scott, I don't know if you were going to go to the next verse or if you already said it. What is there one, chap, uh, one verse talks about everything you do, do in the name? Yes. Colossians 3 there, it's it, verse 17. Oh, I just, you just read it. Well, yeah. I was in so Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. So it goes beyond just praying. I baptize somebody in, 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 in the name of Jesus. I say that. But it's not just the saying it, it it's the doing it. And, and this is, can be illustrated from Acts 19. Uh, we remember what happened in Acts chapter 19. Paul had been doing a number of miracles in Ephesus here, and there were some Jewish exorcists who decided they wanted to get in on the action. So what did they do? Acts 19, verse 13. Uh, certain, also of the strolling Jews, exorcists, took upon them to name over them to add evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, who Paul preaches. There were seven sons uh, of one Sceva, a Jew a chief priest, who did this. The evil spirit answered and said unto them, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and mastered both of them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Oops. This this became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, uh, that dwelt in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. So the question is, did these fellows do it by the name of Jesus? They said no. they did. They, they said, said they did, word. but they didn't. But the question is, did they do it by the name of Jesus? So German Ortiz says, praying in the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit, is praying in the authority of them. And, yes. and so these guys that you're talking about in Acts 19, no, they did not do it in the name of Jesus. They said they did, but you could say that was a lie. <laughs> so it's really then by the authority, that's the intent of using that thing by the authority of Jesus. So to illustrate this, this people, I think, don't even always take time to understand what it means to do something in the name of somebody. And so some people have the idea, I'm going to do this in the name of somebody, kind of meaning more or less the same as I'm going to do it in remembrance of so-and-so. Like, I'm going to put these flowers here where so-and-so loved to come before he died uh, in his name. And what they really mean is it's for him. It's, it's me thinking about him. But in, there's an illustration of doing something in somebody's name in 1 Samuel 25 when David and his 
uh, hundreds of men. At this point, I don't remember if we're 400 or 600, but he's got these men with him that are out in the wilderness, and they're on the run. But while they're on the run, they've been watching over the flocks of a rich man named Nabal, and they've been protecting those flocks from bandits that might come steal them. Um, and, and so when the sheep shearing time comes, when the rich man is going to have a lot of wealth coming in, David sends his messengers to Nabal to ask, can you do something for us? And it says in verse five, Nabal, David sent 10 young men and David said to the young men, go up to Carmel, visit Nabal and greet him in my name and then make this request. And so it says in verse 9, when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name. If they had just on their own, own, on their own, said, hey, let's go to Nabal and ask that he give us a bunch of food, and we'll say it's in the name of David, it wouldn't have been because David hadn't sent them. But because David sent them, they could say, we're here in David's name. Gotcha. And so by his authority, right. in this case, representing him. Right. Yeah, very good. So when we pray to God in Jesus' name, it's because of what Jesus has done that we have the right, that we right. have the authority to approach God. Or as it says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, we have peace with God through him. We stand in this grace because of Jesus. We had a comment come in from Billy a couple minutes ago saying, we just need to ask God through Jesus to direct our steps. This is not in man to do so. The Jeremiah passage is not in man to direct his steps. And certainly that's the idea is as we're praying to God in Jesus name, that's how we have access to the fathers through the son. And let's just read a couple of those texts from Hebrews four fifteen. Having been a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the finger of our infirmities, but one that has been in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with boldness to the throne of grace. And then in Hebrews chapter 10, having verse 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus by the way which he dedicated for us, a new and living way through the veil. So he, he gives us that access. It, it, it's through the grace offered in his blood and the reconciliation that gives us that right to, to have that relationship. We just got a question in on the Facebook page from Daniel who asks, does this apply to spiritual practices only, prayer, singing, preaching, fasting, ministering, etc.? Uh, would that mean we work, quote, in Jesus' name? Would we wash dishes in Jesus' name? I don't believe that would be the case, but I've heard others say that this is true. Uh, I agree we don't have to say the words in Jesus' name, but there is a sense in which all our lives should be in perspective of God, so I can see how they get that. What would you all say to that? Yeah, well, I wanted to, that's what I wanted to take it next with, uh, with Scott, because he brought up Colossians 3.17, which says, All things. Yeah, let's so, let's expand upon that a little bit there, Scott. How how is it we do all things in the in the name of under the authority of? Let's take a look at Titus chapter two, verse nine. Exhort servants to be in subjection to their own masters, and to be well pleasing to them in all things, not gainsaying, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all 
all things. How, so here's, here's us, instead of compartmentalizing and say, okay, on the first day of the week, I assembled with the saints, you know, did my Christian thing. Now it's back to real life. And I'll get back to God next Sunday. No, while he's working for his master, this is what he's ought to do. And how is it that by behaving as he should, how does that adorn the gospel? He's conducting himself in a manner consistent with our Lord and Savior, with our master, his ultimate master, Jesus. And so in conducting himself that way, it's like Peter argues in First Peter, the second chapter, people who look at us to maybe even looking to find fault can by our good works glorify, glorify God in the day of visitation. They can look at this person and say, huh, this person lives in a manner consistent with his faith. He believes something. And then Peter talks about asking us, why do you have this hope? And being ready to give answer for the reason for the hope that lies within us. But they're going to be motivated to ask because they see us living in a way that, that communicates this hope. We have a hope for something hereafter. So what you're saying then, the answer to that question, Stephen, the question that came in is, does this apply to spiritual practices only? The answer is no. So, yeah. And by, by doing what he should and by being a light to the world, because we're not being a light to the world by, hey, did you see me on Sunday singing Amazing Grace at church? <laughs> that's, not, that's not being a light to the world. If the world happens to come in, it should see that light. But we need to be a light to the world. And so this servant here, when he's behaving like he should, say his master has eight servants. And, you know, that one's lazy, that one steals from him, that one's dishonest, that, and then what makes this guy different? You know, what makes that guy different? And it, it, it shines a light, and it may lead that master to end up, you know, coming to the Lord himself. So, Whereas, and what's the opposite of that, just real quick? Romans 2 talks about the sins of, uh, of of the Jews who would claim the God of Israel, but because of the way they were behaving self, themselves, it led the Gentiles to blaspheme God. And so the way we act on an everyday basis can, can reflect either badly or well for what we're claiming to be. So this is a good question. I appreciate this question about Colossians 3.17. Does it apply only to spiritual things or not? In a sense, everything is spiritual because everything that we do reflects our spiritual identity. But I think it is not unusual for people to think of this passage, whatsoever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him, to think of this passage, quote this passage, bring this passage up, just in connection with congregational activities. And I think that misses the point. Paul is talking about whatsoever you do in word or in deed, do in the name of Jesus. And then we get in discussions about what churches can do, and people say, well, we do lots of things without authority, because what they're thinking is we don't find them specifically mentioned in the word of God, and so we don't have Jesus' authority for doing it. But I sometimes deal with this question about Colossians 3.17 this way. Um, Let's see, who of you, you all are, are in your places. Um, so nobody drove to do this. Well, well, here we are using uh, microphones and monitors, modern technology. Where do you see that in the New Testament? How can you say we're using these things by Jesus' authority or in the name of Jesus? That's in Third Peter. Third Peter. <laughs> well, I often use the illustration of, of a car. 
Um, you know, you drive a car. Where do you have authority from Jesus? Where do, how can we do that in Jesus' name? I go back. I say, look, not every instruction from Jesus, not every authority example of God authorizing something is real specific. Sometimes, m- mostly, the things that we do every day fall into that category of things where God has broadly spoken and given us authority for what we do, given us a word from God. And take driving a car. We go back to Genesis chapter 1, and God put all things under uh, man's dominion, said rule over it. And in uh, Psalm 8, he talks about, the psalmist talks about how God has put all things under man's dominion, and he's to rule over these things. And in First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17, uh, God hath given us all things richly to enjoy. And so what do you have? You have God saying, here's this creation. It's yours to have dominion over it, rule over it, enjoy it, use it. Now, sometimes he gives us very specific instructions. He says, I want you to do this. Um, but here he's spoken very broadly. Now, if I then go out and I find a rubber tree and I tap it and I get the sap out of it and I make some rubber tires and then I dig up in the ground and I fire in some of this creation that God has told me to rule over and I find some iron ore and I turn it into steel fenders and trunk lid. And, and then I find a cow that God has created and said, here, this is yours. Use it. And I skin that cow and have a nice steak dinner and make some leather seats out of it. And I put those leather seats and those rubber tires and those steel fenders together. And I drive this car and enjoy this creation that God has given me. Did, did I have, can I say I did that? with uh, a word of God? Did I have authority from God? Did I do that in the name of Jesus? Somebody say, well, where's Jesus in there? Well, Jesus is creator. He was there at creation. Um, I believe I can. Not that God specifically said you can drive a 1998 Honda Accord, although the Bible does speak of everybody being in one accord. But, uh, (laughs) but, But the point being, Yes, all things that we do, we're to do in Jesus' name. Everything that I do, I need to have a word from God. I need to have Jesus' authority. It may be part of that broad category of things, or it may be something he's very specifically said. So, Let's look back at the Colossians 3 passage. and take. Oh, go ahead, Stephen. Uh, one passage I like to look at uh, in the spirit of this is 1 Peter 4, 8 through 11 where he gives some general commands and he says how we ought to be doing them. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Uh, He just talks about this principle of there's nothing in our life that's outside of our service to God and loving one another. And so that in that sense, we're doing those things in the name of Jesus Christ to the glory of God, the father. Before you get to your verse there again, Scott, I just wanted to bring up in relationship to what uh, Jeff was saying, the technology we're using to broadcast the spiritual things from the Word. In Matthew 28, ties in his authority, verse 18, all authority has been given to me, but he says in 19 to his disciples, 
go therefore and make disciples of all nations, right? He doesn't say how to go. He doesn't say use a chariot or doesn't say use your feet and sandals or take a subway, which they didn't have that. He just says go. So isn't that then leaving us open that we can go in any form we have? Yeah. I often use the chocolate cake illustration. If, if, I, if I'm headed into the house and Libby's on her way out and I'm hungry and I say, hey, is there anything to eat? She says, uh, open the refrigerator, look on the second shelf, you'll find something. And I open the door up and on the first shelf, there's a chocolate <laughs> cake. Do I have authority to eat that chocolate cake? No, she said, look on the second shelf, you'll find something. But if she says, yeah, look in the refrigerator, you'll find something. And I open the door and there's a chocolate cake on the first shelf. That puppy's fair game. <laughs> she said, look in the fridge. I looked in the fridge and there was a chocolate cake. She didn't mention it specifically, but she, she forgot she put it there. That's her problem. <laughs> Coming back to the Colossians passage, uh, it, the text, look what it says next. Now, it had just said um, in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts unto God. And whatsoever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. But look also at the text that follows and think about how this is also doing things with God's authority. Verse 18, this is Colossians 3, starting now in the next verse, verse 18. Wives, be in subjection to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing in the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children, seeing that they be not discouraged. Servants, obey in all things them that are your masters according to flesh, not with eye service or, men, or as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatsoever you do, Work heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men, knowing that from the Lord you shall receive the recompense of the inheritance. You serve the Lord Christ. Yeah, that's helpful. That He just shows how serving the Lord Christ, doing things in his name, extends into our relationships as spouses, as servants, as parents. It, it all ties together. We had a comment come in just a minute ago from Billy who said, if you remember the first and uh, second greatest commandments, everything else will come easy in my experience. Uh, that's certainly the idea. Love the Lord, your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. And that falls under doing things in the name of the Lord. Those are the two greatest commandments that the Lord gave. Guys, we're coming up here another minute or so. Um, don't want to cut that off because we can still spend another minute or so on it. But I do want to, I did want to put up our contact screen information. Everybody want to email us or call thanks us. Thanks for all the interaction today from, uh, from listeners. I thanks do appreciate that too. And I want to, you know what, I don't say it enough, but I also want to thank those of you who are coming in and listening to the recording through the podcast. You, you don't have the disadvantage I'm sorry, you have the disadvantage of not seeing anything on the screen. Today, we didn't talk about or show anything on the screen, but you, and I want to thank those that are coming in on the podcast, but thank you don't you see the, the screen with our contact information. What's that, Scott? I said, thank you to the pod people. Yeah. Pod people. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah, and you can get the podcast if you're not able to take a watch the program today or live on time. Go to the website, BibleQuest.tv, and there's three or four different ways that you can subscribe using your favorite podcast method. Um, Scott at BibleQuest.tv, send an email to him. Jeff, Stephen, or Drew, any one of us at BibleQuest.tv, and you can get an email to us. Guys, anything else you want to wrap up today? Thank you, guys. Appreciate working with you. Yeah, thank you, everybody. Thank you all as well. Good, and I thank you again. It's really good to be back with you. I missed being here last week. Good to be Glad back. We, we missed you. I'm glad you're feeling better, Drew. You were, you were, you were one sad case last week. I'll tell you, no one heard me on that voice. You guys heard me with the voice earlier. And, oh, man, I just could not speak. All right, guys, look forward to seeing you all next week.